0: Okay, this morning, turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 3, as we continue to work our way through this incredible book of the Bible. So we are going to uh, read through this chapter together. It's not very long, but it's an an incredible and an amazing story. So Acts chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Now Peter and John went up together to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. And a certain man lame from his mother's womb was carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple, which is called Beautiful, to ask alms from those who entered the temple, who, seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, asked for alms. And fixing his eyes on him with John, Peter said, look at us. So he gave them his attention, expecting to receive something from them. Then Peter said, Silver and gold I do not have, but what I do have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and immediately, excuse me, and lifted him up, and immediately his feet and ankle bones received strength. So he, leaping up, stood and walked and entered the temple with them, walking, leaping, and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God. Then they knew that it was he who sat begging alms at the beautiful gate of the temple, and they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. Now as the lame man who was healed held on to Peter and John, all the people ran together to them in the porch, which is called Solomon's, greatly amazed. So when Peter saw it, He responded to the people, Men of Israel, why do you marvel at this, or why look so intently at us, as though by our own power or godliness we had made this man walk? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered up and denied in the presence of Pilate, when he was determined to let him go. But you denied the Holy One and the just, and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And killed the prince of life, whom God raised from the dead, of which we are witnesses. And his name, through faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. Yes, the faith which comes through him has given him this perfect soundness in the presence of you all. Yet now, brethren, I know that you did it in ignorance, as, also, as, as did also your rulers. But those things which God foretold by the mouth of all his prophets, that the Christ would suffer, he has thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out, so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. And he may send Jesus Christ, who was preached to you before, whom heaven must receive until the times of restoration of all things, which God has spoken by the mouth of all his holy prophets since the world began. For Moses truly said to the fathers, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. Him you shall hear in all things whatever he says to you. And it shall come to pass that every soul who will not hear that prophet... Shall be utterly destroyed from among the people. Yes, and all the prophets from Samuel and those who follow, as many as have spoken, have foretold, also foretold these days. You are sons of the prophets and of the covenant which God made with our fathers, saying to Abraham, And in your seed all the families of the earth shall be blessed. To you first, God, having raised up his servant Jesus, sent him to bless you in turning away every one of you from your iniquities. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for this incredible passage of Scripture. May you add your blessing to the reading of your word, to all that we do here today, to the offerings, to the tithes, to our worship. And Lord, speak to us, for your servants are listening. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we've just been considering in chapter 1 and 2 the promise of the Holy Spirit that God said He would send upon His church, that Jesus said He would send first to His apostles and then upon the church. And then we consider that great message on the day of Pentecost, that first message that birthed the church. And as we consider that, we came to the end of chapter 2 And we saw that this this church that God has established by his word and by his spirit is now trying to figure out how to go forward. How do we meet together? And we considered last week in Acts 2, 42 through 47, uh, verse 42, they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in the breaking of bread and in prayers. And we sort of broke that down and talked about it last week, what it means to look at the apostles' doctrine uh, the fellowship together, uh, you know, and what koinonia means, which is the Greek word for fellowship, that, that participation and sharing together of our lives with one another. The breaking of bread, uh, the Lord's table specifically, but also anytime we gather together in fellowship as brothers and sisters in Christ. And then prayer, private, personal prayer, as well as group or public prayer. And how, the God, how our God loves these things. He established these things. These are in many ways marks of a healthy church. These are the things every church should be doing at its core, at its basis. And so now we move into chapter 3. The church is moving forward. We aren't told how much time has passed between the day of Pentecost and this time when Luke has chronicled for us, Peter and John walking up into the temple about the time of prayer, the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. Of course, the Jews had their ways of reckoning time throughout the day. Uh, 6 a.m. was sort of the time when they regarded the day would start. Uh, The hours of prayer were 9 a.m., noon, and 3 p.m. And so at each of those times, there would be a, a sound or something from the temple that would, you know, a trumpet that would call people to prayer. And they would come and they would pray. And the three o'clock prayers were regarded to be sort of the beginning of the evening prayers. And so at 3 p.m., Peter and John, it says, they went up together to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. The ninth hour of the day, starting from the 6 6 a.m., the ninth hour would, of course, have been 3 p.m. And it's interesting to consider, now, what are we learning about the church? What are we learning about these people Whom God has called out and whom whom he is making an example for us. Well, as Peter stood up to deliver that message there on that first day, the day of Pentecost, uh, when he spoke and and we looked at his message and we broke it down, he was a man of the word. And these things are, are things that the Spirit of God just called forward from peter's life uh, scriptures he had read giving peter divine understanding and divine recall as he stood and preached so he was a man of the word and certainly the other apostles and disciples were as well they were people of the word we also know that they were people of prayer we looked at that as we came to the end of the chapter last week in chapter 2 but we're going to see as we go forward here in chapter 4 and chapter 5 And the the ensuing chapters that one of the things that was regular in their gatherings was prayer. So they were men or people of the word, men of the word, men of prayer. We're going to discover today as they are walking into this temple and they heal this man that they were men of faith. Now faith is believing and trusting, of course, in the Lord, in his goodness, in what he has said and what his word says. But faith also involves an element of risk, does it not? Because faith, while faith is founded upon the word of God, it's founded upon the truth of God. The risk side is in what we do in obedience when we trust that what God says is true. See, there are many, many things, of course, that are spelled out in the word of God. Prophecy, things that are coming, things that if you do, God will bless you. Things that if you don't do, if you participate in sin and you go down a certain path, these things will happen to you. But there's also things of faith about which we, we don't know the outcome. We don't know the results. It just means that we have to trust them. You know, we've, a couple of years ago, we studied in the book of Genesis. We looked at the life of Abraham. And what did God say to Abraham? He says, Abram, get out from your people and go to a place that I will show you. He didn't have the steps of faith. He, he, he didn't know where he was going. He just had to go. And he had to trust that God was going to lead him and provide for him. What about those 20 plus years that Joseph was thrust into you know, a series of events that he would have never thought would have come into his life when his brothers were going to kill him? And then they ended up selling him into slavery. And as we studied that, the life of Joseph, how, where he went, how he ended up, But it was a part of God's divine plan. And Joseph was a man of faith. But Joseph didn't know from a day-to-day basis what was going to happen in his life. He was thrown in prison twice, unjustly. Once he was left there for two years. So you understand prayer, excuse me, faith, there's risk involved in trusting God. We don't always know the outcome, do we? Of what it means to believe in and trust God and to lean upon Him. You know, one of the questions that people always ask, and I think we all want to know to some degree, is what's God's will for my life? What's God's will in this situation or in this next season of my life? And I can tell you over the years, as I've, you know, walked through many things, as I'm sure you have, you pray, you read scripture, you talk to people, you trust in the Lord, and God just begins to speak. I know of a particular brother who, he was... At this phase in his life, he was a pastor, and he had wanted to, you know, just serve the Lord. He was pastoring a church very successfully, and things going well, the church was growing, everything was just great. And yet he began to feel that God put this thing upon his heart, this, this itch, this desire to do something new, to do something different. And he was like, but Lord, this is crazy. Everything's going great here. Why would I leave this? And yet God began to put it upon his heart. And then all of a sudden, the God began to put a place on his heart. And it was the city of London. And as he was praying about this, God began to give him many, many different little signs along the way that he wanted him to, to sell everything and leave the church and turn it over to somebody and go to London. And God's mission for him was to plant a church there in the heart of London. And so he did, he planted, which I believe at that time was the first Calvary chapel in the center of the city of London. And yet he didn't know, I mean, one day he's fine, the next day he wakes up and there's this, this thing, this itch, this desire in his heart and he he prays about it. And it just developed over time. And I've heard him, I know him and I've heard him tell his story about how how God did that. And if you heard his story, you would probably go, it's a little bit crazy But God very specifically led him there. He planted that church. He was there for many years. And then God wanted to establish a church there, used him, and then turned it over and brought him back. So men of the word, men of prayer, men of faith. And certainly one of the things we've seen all the way along uh, this uh, study in the book of Acts so far is uh, people or men and women filled with the Holy Spirit. So these things are going to be emphasized over and over and over Men and women of the word, of prayer, of faith, people filled with the Spirit of God. So here we are in chapter 3. Peter and John went up together to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. And a certain man, lame from his mother's womb, was carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple, which is called beautiful, to ask alms from those who entered the temple. Now we're going to learn as we go through this passage this man was about 40 years old. He had some kind of congenital birth defect. He had never walked. Lame from birth. And now he's at this, this point in his life, and who knows when it was that they started taking him and laying him daily by the gate. But, you know, put this in our modern context. This is, this is a beggar on the street. A, a person who, they have no job, they have no income, the government, the state, no one's providing for them. Their only means of survival is what they might get in alms, as it was called, or begging. And so this lame man from his mother's womb was carried there and probably not left there the whole day because it would have been hot in the hot seasons. But at those hours of prayer, just before 9 a.m., just before noon, just before 3 p.m., they would have brought him there. And keep in mind that he couldn't go by himself. People had to carry him. And so he's there. He's been put into his position outside this gate called the beautiful gate. Now, if you are so inclined, you can look in the back of your Bible, and there's probably a a maps section, and there's probably a layout of the temple, and you can see how it was laid out there within the city walls, and that uh, the beautiful gate was kind of the main gate that went up into the court of the women. And so he was put at kind of the main place. There were three gates that entered the temple courtyard. The beautiful gate was the main gate. It was the most ornamental gate. We're told by historians that these uh, these doors, uh, there were two doors and they formed a perfect square. And they were overlaid with Corinthian gold and they had all sorts of ornamentation on them. And that these gates were so uh, you know, striking that when you were walking in, people would often just look at, stop and look at the gates because they were so amazing in their craftsmanship, and thus they were called the Beautiful Gate for that reason. And so this is the main entrance. This man is laid there to ask alms from those who entered the temple. This man was probably there, of course, for many, many years, including the time that Jesus ministered. Jesus likely walked past this man many times with his disciples. All of those regular worshipers there knew who this man was. As people came up year by year, Uh, For the the feast, remember there were seven feasts, three were compulsory for all male Jews. And so people knew who this man was. His face was familiar, his voice was familiar. And so as they are walking in, Peter and John, about to go into the temple, this man cries out in his normal way, asking for alms, begging. And fixing his eyes on him, verse 4 With John, Peter said, Look at us. Now, if somebody speaks to you and you're a beggar, then that's good news. Someone's speaking to you, right? You think, Hey, they're going to give me something. So he gave them his attention, expecting to receive something from them. Then Peter said, Silver and gold I do not have, but what I do have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. This is an epic moment. This is epic because Peter had never healed anybody. Peter's saying to this man in faith, a man filled with the Holy Spirit, Peter, trying to exercise faith, believing all the words that Jesus said, hey, I'm going to send the Spirit and when He comes upon you, He will enable you, He will empower you to do the same things I've done and greater things. He will give you recall. He will give you what you need. You just need to trust me and to trust that the Spirit of God within you, Peter, is going to do these things. Remember Peter back when Jesus was present with them and they were out on the boat crossing the sea and Jesus said, go ahead, I'll meet you on the other side. And remember Jesus came walking to them in the middle of the night and as he was coming walking to them, uh, they at first thought it was a ghost, it was a storm, it was kind of rough and rainy and all that out, and then, you know, they're, they're theorizing, is this a ghost, what's happening? And then they said, it's the Lord. And one of them talked to the Lord, they cried out to him, and then Peter said, hey, Lord, if it's truly you, call me to come out to you on the water. And what did Peter do? He took that step out on the water. Now, listen, that really happened, right? Can any of you imagine? Can any of us Imagine? Walking on water with Jesus? Crazy. But he began to experience that. Remember, as he was walking, he began to look at the wind and the waves around him and he lost his focus and he, he, he began to doubt. And in that moment, he began to sink and, and he said, Lord, save me. And Jesus reached down and grabbed him and pulled him up and then they got into the boat. No doubt, Peter knew that. And just like when he denied Jesus He had to have these things in his mind. These are lessons he's learned. And isn't it true for all of us that the best lessons are the lessons we've learned through failure? And Peter had been through that. And so now in that moment filled with the Holy Spirit, he and John walking up, getting ready to jump up the steps into the temple to go up for the hour of prayer. And this man's crying out and he looks at him. And with no forethought whatsoever, and we are not told that Peter had been thinking about this for some time, I wonder if we should stop and talk to this guy. It was none of that. I believe in that moment, the Holy Spirit got Peter's attention and Peter looked at this man and said, silver and gold I do not have, but what I do have, I give you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And then we're told he took him by the right hand and lifted him up and immediately his feet and his ankle bones received strength. So he leaping up stood and walked and entered the temple with them walking, leaping and praising God. Now remember Luke is a physician. Luke writes with extreme precision in his language and he uses words here that are used nowhere else in the New Testament. And when he says, In verse 7, and he took him by the right hand and lifted him up, and immediately his feet and ankle bones received strength. He's using a medical term there that's saying something like, his bones were out of place, they were never formed properly, and we can presume because of what we know today about medical technology and how people are formed and developed, because he probably never had weight bearing, his ankle bones were not in the right place, they were not strong. The ligaments and tendons hadn't formed properly. So what he's telling us here, when he says his, immediately his feet and his ankle bones receive strength, it's like, boom, snap, crackle, pop. Everything comes into place all in that moment, right as he's standing, right as Peter in faith reaches out and grabs this man by the, the hand and pulls him up. In that moment, as he's standing up, his feet and his ankle bones receive strength. And it's safe to say, as we read verse 8, So he, leaping up, stood and walked and entered the temple with them, walking, leaping, and praising God. These are his first steps. You know, when we have kids, we watch little babies, right? When they take their first steps, we watch them go through a period of weeks and months. As they wobble across, and we're thinking they're going to fall, they're going to hit their head, and something crazy is going to happen. this man, at 40 years old, is taking his very first steps. Because the Spirit of Jesus has touched this man. How amazing that must have been. Now, there's a couple of points here that I think are important for us to not miss. The first one is, back in verse 6, what I do have, I give you. I don't have money, but what I do have, I give you. And what was it that Peter had that he gave him? He gave him healing and strength in Jesus' name. Right? Now, we cannot give people what we do not possess. True? When we think about this spiritually, what does that mean for us as a church, as people, as believers in Jesus in the 21st century? Well, this is why we need to walk with him. This is why we need to stay close to him. This is why we need to have time in his word and in prayer. I can't give to anyone else what I don't have. If I don't have a relationship with Jesus, I certainly can't lead someone to a relationship with Jesus. If I have never experienced forgiveness, I can't offer them forgiveness. If I have not experienced in my own life the love, the grace, and the mercy of God, then I can't offer that and give that and talk about it to anyone else, can I? You see, he says, what I do have, I give you. And Peter had experienced the love and the grace and the mercy and the forgiveness of the Lord Jesus, had he not? Wasn't he one of Jesus' inside boys? Hadn't he failed miserably many times in the presence of Christ? Wasn't he always saying the wrong thing at the wrong time? And yet, I think the most tragic thing in life for us as believers is not to fail, but it's to never try. It's to not have faith. You see, failing is okay. And someone once said this to me and it makes just incredible sense. It's, if we fall, we should fall forward. We, we need to have faith in God that the things that He said in His Word are true. The things He said about you and me are true. True. The gifts that he's given his church and the way that he ministered to and desires to minister through his disciples, of which we are a part, is true. What I do have I give you in the name of Jesus of Nazareth, rise up and walk. Now, does that mean that you and I can heal people? I believe it does. God's still healing today isn't he still forgiving sins? Isn't the blood of Christ still being offered and the cross of Christ being preached? And until the day when there is no preacher and no teacher and all of that, then uh, until then we are to be here doing these things. Jesus said in the Gospel of Luke, occupy till I come. So as Peter took this man by the right hand and lifted him up and immediately his feet and his ankle bones came together, he, leaping up, stood and walked and entered the temple with them the first time in his life that this man could enter the temple. Now, this is one of the strange things. The Jews didn't like broken people in the temple. Strange, right? This is the house of God. I mean, this is, this is the place you should bring broken people. Remember what was happening? Remember when Jesus was teaching in his ministry and the four men came bringing their lame man on the pallet and they couldn't get to him because the house was full and they had to go up on the roof and to tear the roof open and lower him down to get him to Jesus? Why was that? Because they couldn't take him to the temple. They couldn't take him to a place where people of... Spiritual maturity could come around him and lay hands on him and pray for him. It was not something that they did. You see, this is one of the incredible things that Jesus did. When he said he wanted to put not new wine into old wineskins, but new wine into new wineskins, this was a part of it. You see, this is who we are as the church. The church is, and can be compared to a hospital. We should never reject someone from coming into the presence of God. Who's, who's broken and hurting and lame and maimed and, or any of those things. I mean, those people should be welcomed. They should, be, have a, they should have a front row seat in the house of God. And so the people see this, right? They saw him walking and praising God. And they knew that it was he who sat begging alms at the beautiful gate of the temple and they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. Now, one commentator told this story, as far as I know, it's true. An old commentator, Cornelius Alapide tells how Thomas Aquinas once called on Pope Innocent II while he was counting a large sum of money. You see, Thomas, said the Pope, the church can no longer say, silver and gold have I none. True, Holy Father, said Thomas, and neither can she now say, arise and walk. You see, things change our lives, right? Money, blessings, material things. And these things should not rob us of our faith. And sometimes the most faith-filled people are those who have the least. And yet here in this moment, Peter and John, two fishermen from Galilee, uneducated men, despised by the Sanhedrin and the learned people of that day. God had just used to work this miracle. And now the people are seeing this thing that happened. They're seeing this man walking around and leaping and praising God. And they knew it was him. They recognized him. They heard his voice. They saw his his attire. They knew who it was. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. Now, as the lame man was healed on uh, held on to Peter and John and I imagine he would right I mean these are the guys who just healed him he's been he's been lame for 40 years you know I'm, I'm sure he's just like oh my gosh you've saved my life how can I ever repay you and all of those things and those feelings of gratitude and so Peter saw the people coming and and he you know sort of knew what was in their hearts and that they were thinking that he and John healed the man and he's going to set them straight. So when Peter saw it, he responded to the people. Verse 12, men of Israel, why do you marvel at this? Or why do you look so intently at us as though by our own power or godliness that we had made this man walk? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered up and denied in the presence of Pilate when he was determined to let him go. So what are they doing? They're, first of all, they're making sure if I can say it this way, that they don't touch God's glory. They're making sure that the people understood that they were nothing more than the instrument through which God moved. The story has been told of many times of people, you know, having received some kind of wonderful thing, a miracle, a healing, whatever it may be at the hands of someone, and they begin to sort of idolize that person. And the story was told to try and illustrate this, you know, if you had been severely ill and you needed surgery, and you went into surgery and then you came out and then, you know, you're healed, you're, you're fixed, you're, your problem is solved. Perhaps it was a life-threatening issue and you're like, oh man, that's so amazing. And you call for the doctor, you say, C- can you send the surgeon in? And then that surgeon comes in and he says, yes, how can I help you, you know? And he says, hey, do you happen to have the scalpel that you used in the surgery? He's like, well, yeah. Well, can I see that scalpel? Because that obviously is a blessed scalpel. I just want to hold it in my hand and just admire that scalpel so much. Wouldn't that be kind of crazy? I mean, I would think the doctor was the one who did it, right? But should we, when God works through someone's life, elevate or escalate that person should we idolize them should we lift them up and go oh man that person a holy person of god no we look to the lord we the, the spirit of god the word of god works in and light, through the lives of his people so peter as he responded to this he says why are you looking at us as though we did it we didn't do it jesus did it he says, you denied the Holy One and the Just One uh, and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. So now Peter, he sees an opportunity to preach the gospel, but I'm kind of like, hey, Pete, you might want to soften that a little bit here, buddy. You know, my grandma always said you can attract more flies with honey than with vinegar, right? This, this seems like it's a little rough. You denied the Holy One. He's preaching to all the people going into the temple to worship. You denied the Holy One, the Just And you asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the prince of life, whom God raised from the dead, of which we are witnesses. And his name, through faith in his name, has made this man strong. Whom you see now and you know. Yes, the faith which comes through him, that is Jesus, has given him, this man, this perfect soundness in the presence of you all. So, what is he saying? He's saying God granted the faith that we could believe God for healing. He granted this man faith in that moment when he stood up, when he took my hand. And God granted faith that these things could happen. You know, in 1 Corinthians 12, and I want to read this passage to you on the issue of faith, you know, there's saving faith, there's faith by which we come to Christ and we. We get saved, we believe, and we get born again. But then there's also this thing called the gift of faith. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, beginning in verse 7, it reads as follows. But the manifestation of the Spirit is given to each one for the profit of all, talking about how God gives gifts to His church. For to one is given the word of wisdom through the Spirit, to another the word of knowledge through the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healings by the same Spirit. And he goes on and and lists other gifts. But one and the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually as he wills. Now there seems to be this gift of faith, this ability to believe God for, for great things. In that list of gifts that he lists there in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, he goes on to say, To another, the working of miracles. To another, prophecy. To another, discerning of spirits. Different kinds of tongues. Interpretation of tongues. And see, the gift of faith is the ability to not only just believe God for who He is and for His Word, but also the ability to just believe God for something great. You say, where would you see a manifestation of that? Give me an example. I don't have to look too far. Uh, not, maybe not everybody here knows who Billy Graham is, but you can certainly see this on YouTube. For many, many years, you know, he was an evangelist. So he, that's, who, that's the gift that God gave him. But if you just watch some of those times on, t- on TV, on YouTube, of how God had just given him this vision that, hey, we're supposed to go and preach the gospel in large stadiums, and God wants to move upon the hearts of his people. I think that's a gift of faith. And he took steps of faith to trust God for those things, and he did it. And they were going around the country and around the world to large stadiums, preaching the gospel, preaching through interpreters. And people, thousands and thousands and thousands of people, came to Christ through this man's ministry. And he would have been the first one, and he said it many times, not me. I'm just being obedient to the Lord. I'm just his servant. But that's one example of the gift of faith. Uh, There are, who knows, many, many examples of this. Maybe you have examples in your own life or people you know. And so, back here in our story, Acts 3.16, through his name, so the name of Jesus has Power. Through faith in his name, we place our faith, our belief, our hope, and our trust in the name of Jesus that Jesus is able and he is willing to do great things, that he has made this man strong. Not me, not the touch of my hand. It wasn't something in the power of my right hand when I grabbed him or my left hand, whichever hand he reached out to him with. It was faith in Jesus. And Peter's saying it essentially as we break it down it was his faith in Christ. And it was also the man having faith as as Peter sort of said, "Look at me what what i, I don't i don 't really have anything i don 't have money, but what I do have, I will give you. Remember going back to the story of the men who carried the pallet the the man up on the roof, the four friends who brought the man to Jesus, and they lowered him down in his presence. When we read that story in the Gospels, what seems to be the case there is It wasn't so much the faith of the man. We don't even know if he had faith to get there because he couldn't do anything. He couldn't move. But the faith of his friends seemed to be very integral to the story. It was the faith of his friends who brought him to Jesus. So I believe there's a gift of faith. Can I believe God that he wants to do something in someone else's life? Listen, does God want to save people? Do you know people who aren't saved? For whom you're praying? I hope you do. Doesn't Peter tell us the same guy that God desires that none should perish but all should come to repentance and to the saving faith in Christ? Isn't this the same guy who tells us that? Why wouldn't I pray for someone who's unsaved? Why wouldn't I believe God that he wants to save them? ultimately, it's not God's unwillingness, but it's our unwillingness in coming to Christ by faith. In fact, as we go through this, he's going to talk about that. And he says here in verse 17, yet now, brethren, I know that you did it in ignorance as did also your rulers. You see, when we are without Christ, when we are are unbelievers, we are in this place of darkness and doubt and we don't know. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, the natural man, that is one who doesn't know Christ, cannot understand the things of the Spirit of God for they are foolishness to him. You see, I have a friend who said this many years ago and the first time he said this, it kind of slapped me in the face like, whoa. But then I realized what he said was true. He said, sin makes us stupid. Right? And that's what this is saying. I know that you did it in ignorance. You crucified the Lord of glory in ignorance. You didn't realize it was Jesus. But those things, verse 18, which God foretold by the mouth of all his prophets that the Christ would suffer, he has thus fulfilled. So he's got their attention. They see, You see, God orchestrated this moment. You see, they believed since the day of Pentecost that God was in charge of their lives. So what are they doing? They're doing what they've always done. They were in Jerusalem. They went up to the temple about the hour of prayer. They're just thinking, we're going to go in. We're going to hit this. We're going to pray for 30 minutes. We're going to head out and finish our day. That's what they thought was going to happen. They walk up up to the beautiful gate. This man is crying out. All of a sudden, Peter's moved by the Spirit. He looks at him. He says, look at us, And he says, you know, those words to him, I don't have any money, but what I do have, I give you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, stand up and walk. And the man's healed. And as the man is healed and he leaps to his feet and he's hugging them and he's like, well, let's just, we were going into the temple. Why don't you come with us? They're going into the temple. The people approach them. They see what's happening. This mob ensues. Now there's an opportunity to preach. There's this this evangelistic conference that takes place right there in the court of the temple. They didn't plan any of this. They just wanted to get in and get out. They just wanted to go to church. Leave me alone. But God had a different plan. And so now Peter's there preaching again. This is his second sermon. And as he says here in verse 18, which God foretold by the mouth of all his prophets that the Christ would suffer, he is thus fulfilled. Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The suffering... Praise and the posterity of the Messiah. That's the title of the psalm. Psalm 69, titled, Save Me, O God, or an urgent plea for help in trouble. This is God, you know, Jesus crying out these things from the cross and where he's betrayed. Isaiah 53. And there's many, many more things from the prophets. And they were aware of them. Peter later wrote in his epistle... Of this salvation, the prophets have inquired and searched carefully who prophesied of the grace that would come to you, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ who was in them was indicating when he testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. So Peter preaching, and then he comes to verse 19, repent therefore. You should underline this verse, okay? If, you don't, if you're a neat person you don't like to underline in your Bible, I'm sorry, under You know what? The person next to you, reach over and underline that person's verse for them. Okay? Repent therefore and be converted that your sins may be blotted out so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Wow. Repentance brings conversion. Repentance brings the the forgiveness of Jesus. He says that your sins may be blotted out. So that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. I I read this verse and it's like, man, I want that. Does anybody here not want times of refreshing from the presence of the Lord? Don't we all need this? How do we get it? Well, repentance. What is repentance? That Greek word metanoia means to change your mind and to change your direction. And they're kind of a simultaneous thing. Changing your mind means means changing the way you think. Now, isn't this a hard thing for us? To change the way we think? Anybody ever heard the term epiphany? Right? When you realize, well, something's different than the way I always thought it was. So repentance is like an epiphany. It is an act of the will. It's something that we do. But we come to the place that we are willing to agree with God concerning the things He says. So when the Word of God says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, when the Word of God says that my sin is, is an offense to God, and the word sin means to miss the mark, it means to fall short, when I learn to believe and accept that, then okay, what do I do with that? Now that I've come to the place of understanding I'm a sinner before God, I'm an offense to God, my life is an offense to God, what do I do? I repent. I change my mind about how I think about things, and I acknowledge that, and I say, God, you're right. I am a sinner, and I need a Savior. And He says, Repent, therefore, and be converted. So we change our minds, and we change our direction. It literally means to do a 180, to turn and go in the opposite direction from the direction I was going. So that helps us understand with respect to salvation, to a person coming to Christ, that's what we have to do. We have to repent, change our mind, and change our direction. But you see, also for us as believers, we still sin on this side of heaven. And First 1 John 1, 1.9 says, if we confess our sins... He is faithful and just to cleanse us of our sins and to forgive us and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. You see, we still have a need to repent and to be cleansed even after we've been saved and we've been born again. But here, he's calling them to repentance for the first time. Repent, change your mind, change your direction, be converted, that your sins may be blotted out. Blotted out, listen to this. This has the idea of wiping ink off of a document. The ink in the ancient world had no acid content and didn't bite into the paper. It could almost always be wiped off with a damp cloth. (coughs) Imagine your sins being able to be just wiped off. Or some have said also blotted out can mean covered over. In our world, it's like taking paint, like kills or something, a stain blocker, and painting it over and blocking out that, that stain so that it can't be seen anymore. Peter said here, our sins can be blotted out. They can be erased. They can be covered. They can be eradicated. So that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. In other words, refreshing cannot come from the presence of the Lord unless or until we repent. It's very important for us. And why do I say this today? Preaching perhaps to everybody here in this room may know the Lord. I don't know. Well, Maybe you and I are in need of a time of refreshing before the Lord. Maybe we're feeling dry, a little worn out. Maybe we need to repent. Maybe we need to go before God and say, Lord, examine me. Lord, search me and try me and see if there be any hurtful way in me, as the psalmist said. Maybe if we desire those times of refreshing that come from the presence of the Lord maybe we need to just sit before him and say, God, would you minister to me? And here, as Peter continued, he said, and that he may send Jesus Christ who was preached to you, whom heaven must receive until the times of restoration of all things, which God has spoken by the mouth of all his holy prophets since the world began. Now, when Jesus came, first to his own people, to the Jews, they rejected him. They did not receive him there's many examples of this John chapter 1 those who I think it's around verse 12 he says that those who came to him they didn't receive him but to those who did receive him he gave the right and the power to become children of God even to those who believed in his name and so he's saying here now all of a sudden he's sort of looking forward prophetically in verses 20 and 21 whom heaven must receive until the times of restoration. So Jesus is now ascended into heaven. Heaven has received him until the times of restoration of all things. When is that? Well, I can think of two instances of when that might be. We are not told clearly when is the time of restoration of all things. But certainly the second coming of Christ at the end of the, the great tribulation is part of that. But the restoration of all things hasn't happened at that point. The restoration of all things happens after the thousand-year reign of Christ, as we're told about in the book of Revelation, when the new heaven and the new earth has come. And the heavenly tabernacle has come down, and we live in the heavenly city of God. There's no more sin, no more sorrow, no more tears, no more pain. I believe, personally, that's the times of the restoration of all things. And it says, which God has spoken by the mouth of all his holy prophets since the world began. And then he goes on to say this incredible quotation out of the Old Testament in Acts uh, 3.22. For Moses truly said to the fathers, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. Him you shall hear in all things whatever he says to you. And it shall be that every soul who will not hear that prophet shall be utterly destroyed from among the people. So Jesus, he's saying, is the prophet that Moses spoke of. The Lord your God will raise up for you this prophet. He's saying that's Jesus. Him you shall hear. You heard his voice. You heard him. He was here. He's saying to these people, you heard him. And notice what he says in verse 23 again. It shall be that every soul who will not hear that prophet shall be utterly destroyed from among the people. See, Jesus, as he was coming into Jerusalem at the beginning of uh, the last holy week there that he celebrated with his disciples, Matthew 23, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. Why? Because you wouldn't receive me, your Messiah. For I say to you, you shall see me no more till you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. When will they say that? When they see him coming again. You see, all of this points to the fact that during the time of the tribulation, it will be a concerted time where God is reaching out to his people one more time. In Romans chapter 11, Paul wrote this. Now, if you know anything about that section of scripture, Romans uh, 9, 10, and 11, uh, Paul is writing about what God did in the past and in the present and in the, he wanted, what he wanted to do in the future in the nation of Israel. So in Romans chapter 11, he says, verse 25, for I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion, that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved as it is written, the deliverer will come out of Zion and he will turn away ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. What is all that talking about? The time when Jesus would once again at the end of this period call the times of the Gentiles being fulfilled. And we believe that will be when the Gentiles are taken out of the way, the time of the rapture, when the last Gentile has believed God will once again focus his efforts on the nation of Israel. And so Israel will be saved. And you remember, God sends 144,000 Jewish witnesses during the time of the tribulation. He, he pours out his love and his grace among his people. And so God does these amazing things. He, he fulfills prophecy. Every word matters. There will be not not one jot or one tittle that will be left unfulfilled. And he says in verse 24, yes, and all the prophets from Samuel and those who follow, as many as have have spoken have also foretold these days, you are sons of the prophets and of the covenant which God made with our fathers, saying to Abraham, and in your seed all the families of the earth shall be blessed. To you first, God having raised up his servant Jesus sent him to bless you in turning away every one of you from your iniquities. In other words, the gospel of grace. Now the chapter break is a little unfortunate here because chapter 4 verse 1 continues on. We're kind of in the middle of this thing, but that's where we have to stop today. But you can see here that Peter filled with the Spirit in this moment, taking advantage, seizing the moment that God had presented to him preaching the gospel to all these people there in the temple court, coming to hear what happened to this man, to this lame man who was saved, who was healed. And he was leaping and praising God. And God wants to do these things today, I believe, not just healing people and doing miraculous things, but he wants to save people. And if he needs to take someone who's lame and heal them in order to draw a crowd to preach the gospel, then he'll do that. But I know one thing's for sure. He wants to use us as his people. He wants us to use what he's given to us. Just like Peter said, hey, uh, silver and gold have I none, but what I do have I give you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. What do you have? What have you been given? What have I been given? Let's use it for the glory of God. If you today are here as a son or a daughter of God and and you've been saved, and you've believed in the name of Jesus. Turn with me for a minute, and we'll close with a second Peter chapter one. I want you to read this with me. Second Peter chapter one. let's read verses two and three. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, as his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue. You see, his divine power has given to us all things pertaining to life and godliness. You see, God has given us everything. He's held nothing back. But have we given him everything? He's given us everything. He's held nothing back. What are we holding back? You see, so often it's it's faith, it's obedience, it's belief, it's trust. He wants to use us right where we are, wherever you are, whatever you're doing, whatever your estate, God wants to use you. He wants to use your life. Will you allow him to do so? Will you trust him? You say, but what if I open my mouth about Jesus and I get fired? Then praise God. He's just opened a new chapter of your life. Are we to be unwise? No, we're to be wise. But if God allows us, if he, if he calls us to say something, just as he gave Peter this opportunity, then we should do it. Let's live without fear because you see faith and fear cannot coexist we can't say I have 50% faith and 50% fear that does not work does not compute let's move from fear to faith let's trust God let's walk in obedience and let's believe him that he wants to use us like he used Peter Peter and James ordinary guys Peter and John excuse me ordinary guys just why did, why did Jesus choose me? I don't know. They did. They were chosen by Jesus. He just walked by one day and said, hey, follow me. I'll make you become fishers of men. They're like, that sounds good. Uh, what does it mean? I don't know. Well, they're finding out now what it means, aren't they? Walking by faith. What I do have, I give you. And I hope and I pray that you are willing to give to others that which has been given to you. Lord Jesus, we thank you, we bless you, we love you. And we ask you this morning, Lord, to fill us with faith. Lord, if you're willing to give us this gift of faith where we can go beyond the faith that you gave us to exercise to be saved to being people filled with faith and we can just walk in, in that faith, Lord. No fear, just willing to trust. And and if we we fail, we fail. If we falter, we falter. But Lord, we want to fall forward, not backward. We don't want to retreat. These are perilous times that we're living in, Lord. There is no solution, no hope for the world apart from the gospel of Jesus Christ. There is no political solution. There is only a gospel solution. So God, use us. For Anyone listening today, Lord, who maybe has never trusted you and they don't know what all this means, I I hope and I pray that today it has become clearer. And for you this morning, if if that's you as you're listening, then would you just reach out to the Lord in faith and say, Lord, I, I don't know. I don't know what all this means and how it works, but I want to be forgiven. I want to repent. I want those times of refreshing in my life. I want to know what it means to walk and in freedom, and in faith, and in forgiveness. Lord, would you do that this morning. Do it for all of us, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.